I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You ever said that before? You ever had anyone say they're sorry or ask you to forgive them? Have you ever said you're sorry but really did not mean it? Have you ever said you're sorry to get out of punishment? You ever seen a kid do that before? That they got caught and they're saying they're sorry, please forgive me. The other night I was asking three uh, young boys about what does it mean to be sorry or forgiveness. And one of the boys said, well, you say you're sorry to get on with your day. And I was just cracking up because isn't that true? Sometimes we just want to get on with our day. We want to get on with life. So we say sorry to get rid of the consequences. Or we say, please forgive me to get past that because we want to get on with our day. And today we look at a text in which Jesus is very seriously calling all people uh, to see the great need of repentance in their life And I think that any time that a pastor gets up to preach about repentance, there are people in the churches who think, well, I came on the wrong day. I should have stayed home. Uh, Pastor, yes, those people need to hear a message on repentance, but I'm doing good. I'm not like those sinners. I go to church. I give. I, uh, you know, read my Bible. Pastor, those people need to repent, so give it to them. Uh, Jesus, though, in this text here, emphatically repeats himself and says that every person needs to repent in life. And so I would encourage you to pay great attention to the words of Christ as we read Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. And as we read this, the big idea is that we are all sinners deserving death in need of repentance and God's mercy. Would you look at Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1? There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well, good. But if not, you can cut it down. We've just read the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I pray that we would listen and hear and apply in our life today. You may have seen it on the news earlier this year, February, uh, February 16th of this year in Africa, in the country of Burkina Faso. There were a church service like this going on, and there were terrorists came in, and they killed 24 Christians, including the pastor. They also wounded more than a dozen horribly. It was a horrible scene. And then they also kidnapped a number that they don't know how many exactly. And you wonder, wow, 
Why did that happen to them? Have you ever had a conversation with anyone and they ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why did those people die? Did they sin against God? Is God punishing that person with cancer because they disobeyed Him? Is God going to pay me back because I've done this and wronged Him? Well, twice Jesus says there's a need for repentance. And if you do not repent, you will perish. And so look at this first point in verses 1 through 5. They begin to ask Jesus again. They've been in this crowd in, in Luke 12. We don't know how many are there. But this crowd asks Jesus, hey, Jesus, what about all those Galileans? They came to the temple. They had their sacrifices. And they were going to sacrifice. And they had the blood of these animal sacrifices. And Pilate sends in some soldiers. And they slaughter the people in the temple at this sacrifice. And it's such such a horrible slaughter that these Galileans who came to God, their blood was shed and it was mixed with the blood that they had brought to sacrifice to worship God. The same Pilate that had Jesus on trial gave the order for this horrible execution of these Galileans. And people are beginning to ask Jesus and he's like, hey, you know, what about them? And he says in verse two, do you think that these Galileans were worse Sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Again, he's saying, do you think this happened because they were more sinful than the other people that weren't taken out? There were possibly people that came before or after them the day before, day after, who came also with sacrifices. I don't know, maybe this was at a point of the time of the Passover. We're not sure, but there's this sacrifice that's happened and these soldiers ordered by Pilate come in and kill them and slaughter them. And what Jesus is really beginning to address is what I call the friends of Job syndrome. The friends of Job syndrome. If you read the book of Job, he has three friends. And sometimes when I read that, I'm like, yeah, I really want friends at a time of suffering. If you don't know what happened to Job, he had, the, he had this uh, point where uh, fire from the sky falls and these other people come in. All the things that he owned was taken or wiped out and his children were all in a home and the wind blew and killed them all. After his wife told him to curse God and die, then he was afflicted from sores from head to toe. So now his three friends show up. Friends of Job, you think, great, they're going to come and comfort him and come alongside. But instead, they've got this sense where they begin to say, Job, it starts in chapter 4 with this guy named Eliaphaz. And he's like, Job, you had to have done something wrong. For God to do all this, you know, just admit it. The sooner you admit that you were wrong, the sooner that God will, you know, solve all these things. And many people in this world believe that tragedies happen because God judging them for what they've done. I mean, think about people who talk about, oh, they just have bad karma or there's something from their, their past life or I got to watch what I'm doing now so that I don't come back in the future as a dung beetle or something like that. And it's like people think that if they are doing this, this, and this, that God then is going to judge them that way. And Job's friends insinuate that Job's problems 
and the loss of his children's life and everything was because God was punishing them. If you go and read the first two chapters of Job, you find out that it's not God that's doing this, but it's Satan who's doing this. And he had to have permission from God to actually do the acts that he did to come against Job. And it was a test because God said, look at Job. He's a man who's righteous and he follows after me. And Satan says, well, if you do this, this, and this, he will curse you and he will go away from you. I mean, think about that. The people you talk with. Imagine if you were talking with some people that you work with or neighbors that you have or people that you go to school with and they see something tragic like the life of Job. Man, what did that person do? I mean, have you ever thought those things, even if you never said it out loud? Like, what did that person do to receive that type of thing? Well, it wasn't just Job's friends, but actually the disciples. If you turn to John chapter 9. There is a blind man that Jesus and the disciples come across. And the blind man, this guy's been blind from birth. And so in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, isn't that the question? You're like, man, what? Jesus, why is this guy blind? What did he do? Or what did his parents do? And Jesus says in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And if you go on from there, you see that Jesus, he mixes up some mud and he puts it on the guy's eyes and the guy is healed. And the Pharisees, they call him in. They're so upset about this because Jesus healed him. And at the end of the text there, you see that the man meets up with Jesus again and he believes in Jesus as Lord. But Jesus said, no one sinned here. This was done so that I would heal him so that God would get all the glory for what was done. You see, sometimes the suffering in our world, we just think it's something that happens when really there's actually a plan or something that's been allowed that God in his sovereignty, that he always will bring his people through the suffering so that God gets all of the glory. Job's friends didn't know that Satan had asked God for permission to do what he did to Job. Now, at the same time, when you read through the word of God, you do see times where God strikes a person. He will slaughter uh, armies in the Old Testament. You will see that he causes someone to die, that he gives the God gives leprosy to someone. Or you read about a group of people that rebelled, the Korah's rebellion, and God opens up the ground and swallows those people. Specifically in Acts chapter 12, you see where a guy named Herod in Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 23. It says, on an appointment day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You go, wow, the hand of God, right? So there are times where we have in God's word where God does strike a person. He does kill a person. He does take out an army. He sends a plague. But Jesus is teaching us today here that not to be quick, to appoint someone's sin with a tragedy that is before them. 
He says this in verse 3. No. That's the answer. No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Likewise perish. And so the real question should not be, man, what do those people do to deserve that? But it should be, why did God spare me from that? Why didn't I go through that? Why don't I have cancer? Why didn't that tornado hit my house? Because I'm a wretched sinner. That's really what Jesus is wanting us to pay attention to, is to get our eyes off the other people and what we would blame them with or think that's why God has punished them. And instead to think, wow, God has such mercy upon me. I am such a wretched sinner and he's sparing me? Why didn't I get taken out like those terrorists took out those Christians in Burkina Faso? Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. And so instead of now them asking Jesus, hey, what about the Galileans? He now says, well, wait, not just the Galileans, but look at verse four here. He says, remember those 18 people? They were over by the wall and that tower of Siloam, it fell and killed them all. Wasn't that horrible? They were crushed. They died. And Jesus says in verse four, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus said, well, why about the other people? Why didn't it fall on them? What happened to these 18 people here? I think that some of us will look at how we face suffering and you maybe in the back of your mind think, well, God's got this measuring stick. And it's like, okay, oh, they sinned here. Okay, now I'm going to strike them with lightning. Or, you know, that one's not as bad, so I'm going to you know, take that away from them. And we think that God is like that, that he just sits in the clouds and he's this guy who's just a God of wrath and he just punishes people. But that's so different from what the, God, what the Bible gives us about God, our Father, that he's loving, that he's steadfast, that he's faithful, that he's patient, that yes, as Jesus says, Repent or you will perish. That God does judge. There is a judgment day to come. But also God's mercy abounds to those who repent from their sins and believe in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? That we can repent from our sins and that God would forgive us? He says those 18. He says he asked them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others. In verse 5, he answers the question. He says, no. Do you see this? He repeats himself. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, he's saying, hey, the tower fell. He, he didn't say, oh, God just directed to fall. The tower fell. The guys who worked on it, maybe the base, they did a horrible mix of concrete. I mean, the whole thing fa- fell. It was an accident. It was a, an occurrence that happened. Think about all the stuff, even in the last year that you've seen or in your lifetime. And there were accidents. Did you ever wonder, was God trying to get them back? Was God trying to take them out because of their great sin? Jesus says... No, but unless you repent, you too, you all likewise will perish. And the reason why is where we started with is because every single person, every one of us, every man, every woman, every child has broken God's law. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and what? Fall what? 
fall short of the glory of God, that God is holy and we are not. I want you to read Galatians chapter 3 this week. Galatians chapter 3, because it speaks of how God's word, scripture, imprisons us in the sense because we're all sins, that we have God's law. And if you go through and read God's law and you ask yourself seriously, have you been able to keep God's law? You will join in and say, no, I have broken every single one of God's laws. I am a wretched sinner. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. If you go back to Luke chapter 12, where we were in the last month, we see that Jesus says he's going to be returning and that when he returns, that all who are not repentant will face judgment and they will face death. And therefore, here again, Jesus says to repent or you will will perish God calls you and God calls me to repent of our sins. And so we ask the question, all right, I need to repent. But what is repentance? What truly is repentance? And I I think sometimes we don't have a clear understanding. Either it's because we're not grounded in reading God's word about repentance. We hear something that sounds religious. We do something that we think that God's going to be happy with us because we fall into this lie. Most of all of us, well, we all fall into the lie before we come to faith in Christ is that we can do something To appease God so then he would love us and forgive us. And God's clear in his word. There's nothing you can do. There's not one thing that you can do to appease me because you have broken my law and you're guilty. So what is repentance? Well, repentance first is not saying you're sorry to avoid punishment and eternal death. Repentance is not just saying, God, forgive me. Okay, I'm wrong. Again, it's like that example of a child saying they're sorry because they don't want to get punished or asking forgiveness just so you can get on with your day. Repentance also is not just sadness or grief because you got caught and there's some consequences. Now, we do understand that repentance works in our heart. and There is grief that's godly. But worldly grief is that thing of sadness of like, oh, now I have to face the consequence. Now I'm going to be punished. So what is repentance? Repentance is a sorrow, a grief, a sadness of your heart as a result of knowing that you've sinned against a holy God. A holy God who has spoken and given you life and breath and allowing you to walk this earth now. Repentance is confessing your sin before God and admitting, God, I have wronged you. I've sinned against you in so many ways. But repentance is also turning from the sin and turning to God. Repentance is also a growth of hatred in your life for sin. And it's a growth of obedience to God's commands. Read Psalm 51 this week. Psalm 51 in which David, who sinned greatly in taking Bathsheba and committing adultery and then having her husband murdered, And when he was called to the carpet by the prophet, he broke. And you see in Psalm 51, him with a repentant heart confessing his sins before the Lord. And he says this, that verse uh, chapter 51, verse 17 says the sacrifices of God 
are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. That's the picture of the heart that Jesus desires that you would have before God Almighty, the Father, who knows you. He knows every sin, all the secret sins, all the open sins. He knows and he sees all. And David says, God is the one who recognizes a heart of repentance that's contrite towards him. And we have examples of where God spares people who are truly repentant. And if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said this about other nations who do not acknowledge God, who do not follow after Him. And in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 and 8, God says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. That sounds good, right? We want God to relent from his punishment when people repent. Well, there's an example of that. God promised it. He fulfills his word every time. Remember when we studied the book of Jonah? What's the name of the city that Jonah was supposed to go to? Nineveh. Everyone knows about Nineveh. That wicked city, the way that God described it, right? He sends Jonah there. Jonah doesn't want to. And he runs. He got the large fish. He finally goes, okay, I'll go. Gets spit up on land. And he goes and tells them, we don't know the exact message, but hey, in 40 days, you guys are getting wiped out. He goes out of the city waiting for it. And the king, he and the people, they put sackcloth on and they sit in ashes. I mean, they're so repentant that they cover their animals with sackcloth. And it says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The mercy of God. How many nations in the history of this world have been wiped out, have been destroyed, because they never relented of the evil and wickedness? I wonder how many nations right now, including the United States of America, that God is calling for repentance in a nation of people. And yet hard hearts will not repent. And therefore is disaster ahead for those nations. We must pray this morning that the nations of the world will repent of their sin before God. That the United States of America would repent of its great sins that have wronged God, that we would be a people who are not only repenting, but praying that repentance would be something that marks our life and marks our nation. So knowing this description of what repentance is, you may be asking, well, how do I get to repentance? Do I go sit in a room and just try to make myself feel bad? Do I write a list of all my sins down and just read through it until I start crying or what? Well, no. We have scripture, again, which guides us of how that we should repent. And I would say where you start is reflecting on how grievous we have sinned against God. To think about the fact that God is holy 
that there is no sin in him and that he is righteous and he is glorious and we are people who have sinned. Something we should reflect on daily would be the place that you start. But here's a few points that I would say that, that, uh, for you to do. Number one is that you need knowledge of your sin. The knowledge of your sin, and this is found when we read what? Where do we find the knowledge of our sin? Read what? The Bible. The Word of God. We can read the Word of God, which convicts our heart and points out that we are sinner. And God is so holy and so glorious. And so if you read, you can turn to a passage like Romans chapter 3. Read Romans chapter 3 where it describes the level of the greatness of sin of all humanity. And it says in verse 19... Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So where you start is if you need to be reminded of the knowledge that you have sinned against God to move to repentance, you need to read the Word of God. I say it every week, open up the Word of God, and I say that to myself. Not just so that I could study to preach or teach, but I need it for my life just daily, that I would be reminded that nothing in me can ever make peace with God. It's only by the grace of God, the work of Christ at the cross, but I need to start with my sin and knowing what my sin is. And the word of God is that which brings us the knowledge of our sin. Well, after you begin to understand the knowledge of your sin, the second thing is that you would respond to the knowledge of your sin. You need to respond rightly. And the Word of God teaches that the right response to the knowledge of our sin is that the Holy Spirit will lead a person to have godly sorrow. Again, it's different than worldly sorrow, which is that thing of, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry now that I have these consequences. I feel horrible about this. Godly sorrow is quite different. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the second letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. You see, in the first letter, he highlights to them ten grievous sins that the church was doing. Not the non-Christians in the city, but the church. And he labels those, and he points out those ten, and he calls them, and as he's waiting, as he writes here, he says, I thought maybe I was too harsh, and maybe you didn't even care with what I said, and you just turned away. And he gets his second letter, or he gets a response back, and he writes a second letter to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to what? Salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When you repent over your sins, it involves the knowledge of your sin, but also a godly grief that you have grieved God who gives you the ability to breathe at this moment. 
You've grieved a holy God who loves you so greatly that he would give of his son Jesus to die in your place for your sins. That this grief would come upon your heart leading you to this repentance. And therefore the third thing is after the knowledge of your sin and a response to your sin with godly grief is to confess your sins before your heavenly Father. That confessing your sins leads to this cleansing and this holiness that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our what? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Isn't that wonderful? To have you ever been forgiven by another person that you just felt horrible? And they forgive you. And that peace is there. And unity is rebuilt. And trust is there. He's like, wow, that's so good. To think, though, that God Almighty would forgive you of all of your grievous sins. When in a moment, he could just send you to your death and eternity separated from him. And it says, not only forgive us, but did you see the end of that verse? And to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, isn't that something that you want to, to have that feeling of that sin that it's gone? There's this cleansing. And what it does is God, through that forgiveness and that work, through the Holy Spirit, he leads his people then to walk in holiness. Have you ever had those days, those moments that you're like, this is such a sweet moment of walking in holiness with my father. This is a great, joyful moment that I have to walk in this holiness, to know that I'm cleansed of my sins, to be loving God and to hear from Him. Those are wonderful moments, and God does that. He promises to do that because a knowledge of our sin from the Word of God and our response to that sin with godly grief and a confessing of our sins which leads to forgiveness and cleansingness. The result is this. The result, the fourth thing, is that there is fruitful life that glorifies God. That is that walking in holiness. That's that joy that we have when we get up and we walk with the Lord and we pray and talk with Him and we read His Word. It's the fruitfulness that He provides in us because of what He's done and through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is that walking in, holy, walking in holiness. Look at Romans chapter 3 or 13. Romans chapter 13. Again, you could go through each of these and there are numerous, numerous passages in Scripture to teach us these things. Romans chapter 13, it says in verses 13 and 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Because even though we are forgiven when we come to faith in Christ, the, when you read the book of 1 John, we still battle with the old self. Even though the old man is dead, we still battle with the sin in our world. There's still temptation that abounds in our life. But we can walk in holiness, or as someone would say, victorious living in Christ, because we put on Christ, like you put on this cloak, in a sense, where the book of Ephesians talks about this, putting off the old and putting on the new. We put on Jesus Christ. When we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, 
what we're doing, what God does is he, we are clothed is with this like cloak in a sense of the righteousness of Christ. Our sins are removed so that even though we battle with sin today, as we walk, when God the Father sees you, his son, his daughter, his child, he sees the righteousness of Christ and he sees a holy son and a holy daughter of his. Shouldn't that cause you much joy in your heart this morning? To think that God the Father sees us that way. Well, but, but, but Pastor, you don't know what I did this week. Like, well, hey, is God working that repentant heart in your life? Well, you don't know what I did 10 years ago. Well, did God already bring you to repent from that? Well, yeah, but, well, God doesn't see that. The Word of God tells us that it's like this picture of God throwing our sins into the depths of the sea where he never sees them again because he sees Christ's righteousness, which is given to us through faith in Christ alone. And so what you see is Jesus then tells this parable. It's real brief, real short. And he basically says, repent while there's still time. If you look here in verses 6 through 9, he tells this parable. Man has a fig tree. It's planted in a vineyard. And he comes looking for fruit. And it's also a picture when you read towards the end of the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospels where Jesus is with his disciples just uh, a short time before he's taken and nailed to the cross. And he sees a fig tree just like this farmer comes. And he sees that he wants some figs. But yet there's not any figs on the tree. And what Jesus says in this parable, it's like three years have gone by. I don't know, the fig tree could have been 10 years old. But for the last three years, the figs have not produced. The tree is fruitless. Before Jesus was arrested, when he came across that, his disciples heard him say, he's like, he cursed the fig tree. And then uh, the, the, when they were walking back past that just a short time later, they see that the tree was withered. Well, here in the parable, he says to the vine dresser, and people go like, wait, why is there a fig tree in a vineyard? That just sounds weird. Well, many of the, the nation of Israel, if they had a vineyard, they knew that that was good soil. So sometimes they put fruit trees there. And so he tells the vine dresser, you know what? Cut this thing down. It is wasting my farmland. And the vine dresser says, you know what? Could you just give me another year? I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to cultivate the thing. I'm going to trim it out. I'm going to do all this. And, and if next year there's no more fruit, then we get rid of it. But you know what? Just give me another year. And what we see when Jesus tells this parable is what he continues to tell the nation of Israel when he was walking the earth. That is this sense of like that, that Israel is that fig tree that was planted, that God loved, and he gave them, the, made them the nation. And yet the nation is not producing fruit that is godly fruit. And so Jesus is warning the nation of Israel, you need to repent now because there is a time coming and the temple will be destroyed and Jerusalem will be wiped out. And you will go through all of this tragic uh, problems that you will face. He's warning them of judgment that would come to them because God desired them to be people with a contrite heart. He, he commanded the nation of Israel to worship him alone. And they repeatedly turned away and therefore was this barren fig tree. John the Baptist we saw at the beginning of Luke, and also it's recorded here in, in the Gospel of Matthew. When he was baptizing people, he turns to the Pharisees, and he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Remember, John the Baptist was calling people to repent of their sins, prepare the way for the Savior, the Messiah who's coming. And you may say, yeah, that parable Jesus is talking about Israel, but Jesus is also talking about us today. The parable is not just about the fruitlessness of Israel, but the fruitlessness of people today, including you, including me. And I love this parable because it teaches us something wonderful about God. That I can stand here right now, alive, speaking to you, because God has been patient with me. That God has shown his mercy with me. He could have struck me dead the moment that I was born. He could have taken me out years ago when I was a child. I could not be standing here today because of something and God would have poured out his wrath on me. But God has been merciful to me and he's been merciful to every one of you because you're here at this moment. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 is another reminder like this fig tree that's fruitless because what you have in this parable is God the Father is the one who plants the tree or the person or the nation of Israel, but the vine dressers say, hey, give me another year to try to produce fruit. It's Jesus, this picture of how he intercedes for us. But here the apostle Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Actually, I'll start in verse 8. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards who? Towards you, towards me. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Some of us are like, God, why do you let that person stay alive today? They are the worst wretched person I've ever seen in my life. God, those people have done so many things against humanity. Those people have done something against me, God. Why would you let them live? But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? God the Father is a loving Father who's slow to anger, that He is forgiving of those who are repentant. But for those who are unrepentant, the reminder constantly in Scripture is that Jesus is returning. Judgment day is at hand. You do not know the hour. You do not know the time, but it is imminent. Christ's return and judgment over sin. And for those who are unrepentant, they will perish for eternity in hell, separated from God and for all who've had a contrite heart, for all who have had godly grief, for all who have repented of their sins, they are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed on the cross and Jesus Christ who died rose again conquering Satan's sin and death, opening the door that the person of repentance believes in Christ as Lord and Savior and are saved. 
Therefore, we go back to where we started at the beginning. We are all sinners deserving death in need of repentance and God's mercy. So you ask the question, and maybe God's already put this for you. How does this apply to my life? Maybe ask yourself this today. Where in my life do I need to repent of thinking that my sin is not as bad as someone else's? Where do I need to repent in thinking, wow, those people, I I don't sin like them, God. When God says our sin is sin. To think that we think murder is bad, but yet Jesus says, you hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them as well. There's not this measuring stick as we were talking in that sense that sin is sin and it's grievous to the Lord. And so as a follower of Christ, read the word so you're reminded of the knowledge of that you have sinned against God so that you would respond rightly by the power of the Holy Spirit, causing a godly grief in you that you would respond and confess your sins, who is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. As the worship team comes forward, I would call to those who are in this room or listening online that hear my voice right now that God has called you if you've not repented and you've only dealt with worldly grief, that you would repent of your sins today, that you cannot save yourself, that only God can save you because of Christ's work at the cross. And Jesus Christ, he ascended to heaven. He's returning In the book of Acts, chapter 2, after Christ ascended to heaven, the disciples saw him go in the clouds. And the angel said, he's coming back. What are you doing standing here staring? And they went back off into the city. And there's a point at which Peter, the apostle, preaches the first gospel sermon. It's in Acts chapter 2. And he preaches the gospel. And it's, it's not him. It's nothing in the words he said. But yet the Holy Spirit strikes 3,000 people that are gathered. And he tells them of the love of Christ and the cross. And that he was buried and he rose again. And this is their response. Acts chapter 2. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That day, 3,000 people repented of their sins. They were given the knowledge of their sins. They were struck with a godly grief. The Holy Spirit moved upon them. And they confessed their sins to the Lord God Almighty. He saved them. I mean, isn't that glorious? When not one of those 3,000 people deserved to even live. Just like us today. And so if you have faith in Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Give thanks to Him. Go to God's Word daily. And reflect on your heart. And if you're far from the Lord and today is the day of salvation, God is saying, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised in the dead and you will be saved. Father, we ask that as we lift our voice to you in song, as we praise you for your greatness and your glory. We want to be people who are regularly confessing our sins to you. Even though you've already forgiven us at the cross, we want to be people who recognize that we are sinners and that we need you. 
and that you're continuing to work on us. So, Father, let our prayer be that we would grow in repentance, that we would grow in our confession of our, of our sins, that we would grow in godliness and holiness, and that we would grow in a desire to be obedient to you. And, Father, for all who are far off, I pray that you would save them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.